We're in a series called Come and See as we journey through the Gospel of John. And as we've seen throughout so far, our author, John the Apostle, retell wondrous signs that Jesus performed in order that many would believe in him as he claims he is, who he is, the Son of God. Last week, Pete served us so well with stepping out of the series to preach on the expulsive power of the gospel. Thank you, Pete. And in many ways, it's a perfect setup for our text and seamless transition back into John chapter 7. In fact, let me use or paraphrase Pete's ending quote of Thomas Chalmers from last week. What if there was a world with such joy, with such gladness of heart and laughter and singing and moral purity a world where pain and mortality were unknown would not that land if it exists make this world look like a land of wilderness in one sense Jesus in our passage today is telling his listeners how to get to or come home to this land he does so in a unique way. Jesus, he knew from our text this morning, he knew exactly what those around him that day were seeing, what they were experiencing, and he used what was around them to teach and to teach to their hearts. So for us then to fully understand him, we need to know his context, which again he uses so deliberately and masterfully. So here this morning are three things that we'll look at. The first is the story that Jesus knew, that he so loved, and that he consciously lived in. In our case this morning, that'll be brought about by the, the feast where Jesus decided to do his teaching. Secondly, we'll look at the promise that Jesus makes. And finally, the explanation regarding Jesus' promise that John gives us. So let us consider together the story, the promise, and the explanation. As a Christian grows in their faith, one of the foundational drivers will be that they know what story they are living in and the specific principles and promises that accompany that story. Consider why we are all here this morning. We, traditionally speaking, gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, in the morning, because we commemorate the Lord's resurrection, which was on the first day of the week, in the morning, as he brought forth and ushered in new creation. So how we keep time, what we celebrate, our holidays, they're all tied identity formation and all of these things are radically changed by meeting and walking with God so God invites us into his story or history that matter and his story as it is told in the Bible it's a story that begins with the goodness and glory of God on full display as creator it's a story about relationships being as creatures created by the creator in the loving presence of God. It's one story that can be endlessly 
explored. So simple for a child to understand, yet ceaselessly captivating to the mature imagination. And as Pete shared with us, last week can be captured in essence in a word, see. To see clearly, the gospel allows us to see clearly by the spirit, the fullness of human reality and the beauty and worth of Christ. So may we see this morning. As we encounter God's story, it's also important to recognize the intentional use of images and pictures that God uses. As we'll see in our passage, Jesus uses the biblical pictures of water and thirst. Though one of the first pictures in the Bible is that of a garden, which signifies God's dwelling place with man on earth. From this vantage point, from this picture of a garden, flows the rest of the story told in Scripture. To summarize the majority of Scripture in just a few words, humanity is banished, exiled from God's garden, from his presence, due to humanity's sin and rebellion against God's just rule. And henceforth, wandering in the wilderness, longing for a way to return home characterizes the rest of the story. From this general outline, we will find the scriptures chock full, especially in the Old Testament, of concrete pictures, imagery given within this storyline. So after this fall of humanity, as we read in Genesis 3, people are people of the wilderness. And we get this, right? We, we intuitively know this. I think we intimately know this. Even if you don't believe the Bible or are skeptical to Christianity. Have you ever experienced toil in your work? Have you experienced bitterness or manipulation in relationships? Have you felt loneliness? Have you even felt alienated from your own self or body? Things are not as they ought to be. Human flourishing is choked in one sense or another. Consider what a wilderness is then in the strictest sense. The dictionary definition. An uncultivated, uninhabited, and uninhospitable region. Moving close to our context and cultural use today, a, a neglected or abandoned area of a garden or town. Or even a metaphorical sense a position of disfavor. We are characterized in one sense as wanderers in the wilderness, exiles, people of the desert where the land is barren, dry, inhospitable to life. And as Chalmer hints at, do we ever have a pang of homesickness for a better land, a land not yet seen where all of life will flourish. So here lies a principle. And it's amidst this inhospitable, inhabitable place where God meets his people. And he promised, he promised he will return his people from exile and that ultimately, in the end, he will bring 
them home to this land. And what picture of home does the Bible give us? The picture given in the end in Revelation, the last book, is that of a lush garden city. The dwelling place of God again with man. This grand story precisely is what the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, we'll see this morning, was all about. It was situated in. How does one get from the wilderness to the garden? Or as Jesus augments it, how can we again experience the fullness of joy in the presence of God? It was at this festival of tabernacles where Jesus came, as we saw earlier in John chapter 7, and where today he will do his teaching. In the context of this story being dramatized during the public ceremony. Through this festival, God instructed his people to remember this story. As we see in the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, specifically in Leviticus, hear these words. After you have gathered the produce of the land, you are to celebrate a feast to the Lord for seven days. There shall be complete rest on the first day and also on the last day. And you are to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Did you hear the heart of God's instructions here? His people are to rejoice before God. They're to celebrate a feast with joy. This is a dramatic annual retelling of the story to commemorate what the Lord their God has done. He has delivered his people from slavery and provided for them in the desert. And the setting now is a feast. And what is a feast but communal joy? The passage in Leviticus goes on. You are to live in shelters for seven days so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I, God, brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is where the festival gets its name. It's a festival of booths or tabernacles or tents because the families would set up these booths to dwell in, to eat in, to celebrate in for the week of the festival to remember their ancestors' time in the wilderness and to celebrate God's provision. As history shows, the festival developed further over time. Water became an integral part of the celebrations grounded in the Old Testament. A water ceremony highlighted the festivities each day of the festival to commemorate. Specifically, after the Israelites, after their ancestors were in the wilderness, after they began to, to, to grumble for the thirst in the desert, saying, are we to die of thirst here? God said to Moses, their leader, in Exodus 17, 6, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink. 
And thus the Lord, their God, provided water to quench their thirst in the desert wilderness. Through the dramatic displays of the water ceremony, remember, remember the Lord's provision of life-giving water. The prophets progress things further. Here, we see a forward-looking, anticipatory element. The prophet Zechariah, the feast, then is linked with life-giving rain. The passage, Zechariah 14, 16 through 7, was read on the first of the seven days at the festival. And this, too, came to be central for the feast, to ask God, to ask God for the provision of rain that their harvest might be bountiful for the next season. Further still, the significance is expanded. Here now the prophet Ezekiel and his vision. Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. The water was flowing down. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. For this water, where it goes, so everything will live. The feast had become associated with a glimpse of new creation. Of a future, or sometimes you'll hear the word eschatological blessing. Of life, vitality, of newness yet to come. In a sense, all time, the the present then, the past, and the future were accounted for in this festival of joy. And water became symbolically significant to their imaginations and central to their acts of worship during this week. Then, lastly here, the prophet Isaiah succinctly summarized with another significant verse quoted around this festival. Isaiah 12, 3. With Joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now may these words be on our minds as they were for Jesus' original audience. Jerusalem that week was bustling as people from all around gathered to celebrate the feast Though as we've heard already in John's account at the beginning of this chapter, 7, Jesus himself did not come right away. This was due to the unhelpful commotion that that would make, not least because of those who wanted to kill him. He, He would journey towards Jerusalem later in the week, privately. Booths were erected. Branches were taken in hand as well as a citron as the crowd headed towards the temple. There was singing, there was chanting, there was dancing in the streets as they amassed for the sacrifices at the temple in the water ceremony. According to the Mishnah, which is Jewish oral tradition, one rabbi said this, he that never has seen the joy of the water drawing ceremony has never in his life seen joy. Now here the rest of this particular festival, as it came to culmination, as told by Ray Vanderlaan. 
When the seventh day of the feast arrived, the courts of the temple were packed with worshipers. Chants of praise were heard throughout the city. The thousands of lulavim or palm branches waved in the air. The priestly procession went to the living water at the pool of Siloam. As the massive crowds awaited expectantly, the sacrifices were offered and the priest chanted, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. The prayers of the Hillel, Psalm 130 to 118. The procession returned and entered the court of the Gentiles. They went through the water gate into the priest's court as hundreds of priests chanted the Hosanna, deliver us, save us. And thousands of people jammed into the temple courts. The procession circled the altar seven times, recalling that of Jericho. And then there were three blasts of the trumpets. And the crowd grew still as the priest poured the living water into the tunnel. Now the chanting became even more intense. Save us, Hosanna. Deliver us, Hosanna. And the next verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The waving of the palm branches reached a frenzy as the branches were beaten against the ground until the leaves fell off. Gradually, the people fell silent as they returned, exhausted, dismantled their booths before journeying home. God had blessed them. They had celebrated joyously his presence thanking him for his gifts of land and bountiful harvest. They had begged for his continued blessing of the rains and had pleaded for political freedom as well. They were now prepared to face another year. But before it was all over this particular year, on the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up before the crowd and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone believes, as is told in the scriptures, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See all of this? All of this points to me. All of this is satisfied in me. Come to me. Believe. And have your soul be fully satisfied. Might it have been on the seventh day of the festival as the priests were pouring the water at the altar before the hushed crowd, that Jesus decided to stand up and cry out? Or was it on the eighth day when no water was poured, amidst the day of rest, where perhaps they were already missing the joy of the festivities of the day before? The Bible doesn't reveal such specifics. 
whichever it was, it was at such a point of culmination that Jesus decided to step forth, to make himself known, and to extend such a promise. Jesus' timing is always perfect. It was with the joys and the hopes of living water on the forefront of the minds of all who were there when Jesus cried out to invite and declare his promise. So to understand Jesus' promise, we must know the story, the context in which he gives it. In so few words, Jesus shows us again that the whole Bible is ultimately about him. He has come to fulfill the whole law, and this includes the feasts, even the, fe the festival of tabernacles as well. Just consider its namesake again, Feast of Tabernacles, which signifies how God dwelt with his people in the wilderness, in a tabernacle, a tent. It's significant that John already in his gospel declared the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled amongst us. There'll be more to say on this. But looking at the end of verse 37 now, Jesus' promise begins with an invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, as we heard. First observation. Given the context that this is made in, it's abundantly clear. Jesus' invitation is to all. For even those who wanted to kill him were present. To everyone who will listen, his invitation is extended. The invitation as we read it is to come to him. To put it more plainly, to believe in him. If you believe, you will receive from him all that he has to offer. It's that simple. What other word would better characterize this than grace? Come, purchase this water without money, without cost. How do you purchase something without the use of monetary value of labor or offering? By believing and receiving by grace. Secondly, Jesus' promise, it's made through pictures. Thirst, water, rivers. Jesus, knowing his context, his original hearers, he's speaking their language. They are very concrete in their thinking. As we saw, they communicate powerfully and vividly through their physical environment and experiences. We in our Western, modern sensibilities are, for better or worse, more abstract and conceptual in our thinking. So we've seen already much of the background of Jesus' claim already. And we know that then he, he grounds his claim in Scripture as the Scriptures have said. Out of his heart will flow 
living water. It shouldn't concern us that a single obvious passage in which Jesus may have been quoting doesn't come to mind here. Rather, as we've seen, it's a whole web of biblical imagery and themes taught throughout the Old Testament, from the law to the prophets to the Psalms. Using this significant and symbolic imagery of water, his invitation is to all who are thirsty. Thirst, in essence, is a felt need, right? A felt need of that which is essential, no less. Water is essential to life. Without it, life withers away and dies. You know, most of us don't depend upon rainwater, like many of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries. Or for that matter, pray for God to give rain. Though farmers today certainly uh, understand this better. Um, but I think many for us today here, I would imagine, have, have some sort of potentially hobby farm or garden. And here, maybe a more relatable water picture, especially this month, right? Trying to keep up the watering in the dead heat of summer. It's tough. You know, if, if you're feeling like the withering flowers or the withering tomato plants in your garden, if this morning, if you're feeling like the psalmist when he says, my strength was sapped in the heat of summer, if you have not yet, come to Jesus and drink. He is the source of life-giving water. Just as water allows the land to flourish with lush growth, what Jesus offers provides abundant growth and fruit and vitality in your heart. Lastly, it should be noted that this promise of Jesus for life-giving water is no less than claiming divinity. His original hearers knew this, many of them, as we'll see next week. You know, for that matter, who else could bring about such life and vitality in the heart of man? Only he who is there before the beginning who created all things, who sustains all things by the power of his very word. He who gives, he who takes away, blessed be his name. And before moving f further, let us not forget too the context that John and his gospel provides for this occasion. It's amidst the murmurings of whether or not Jesus was a good man or was he leading people astray? As we see, chapter 7, verse 12. And the chief priests and the Pharisees were sending officers to arrest him. As we see in verse 32. At the festival, at this festival, Jesus stands to give a clarion call and a costly invitation. For he he knew the stakes. He knew what was required. And this leads us to our last section. Look with me at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for 
As yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John explains for his readers, especially Gentile readers, less familiar with the Jewish context, that Jesus' reference of living water is to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. What does this mean? It means Jesus promises God's dwelling presence now to be in his people, in their hearts, just as Jesus was God's dwelling place during his earthly ministry and the temple and the tabernacle before that. Jesus promises God's restorative presence within all who believe. As J. Ramsey Michaels shows, the image of streams of water from the believer's heart or belly places the accent on the rich abundance of the Spirit's life and power in the heart of the believer. Like a self replenishing stream a self-replenishing stream rivers of salvation bring about inner and continuous renewal of the heart by the promised life-giving power of the spirit like back in john chapter 4 as we heard jesus there his promise Something similar, life-giving waters from within will well up unto eternal life. Jesus accomplishes all that is promised and to he has declared. He's declared that the Holy Spirit will be poured out and dwell in the hearts of those who believe. Well, there's a deposit, there's a down payment for the fullness of what is yet to come. Do you believe that? There's another point in which John sets out to make clear. This, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who believe, would only come after Jesus was glorified. For us to receive the indwelling Spirit, Jesus needed to be glorified. And for Jesus to be glorified, he needed to go to the cross to die and to conquer death itself, to raise in his new physical glorified body. Jesus himself echoes this, as we'll see later in John, saying to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Once Jesus is glorified, our redemption is paid in full by the Spirit, then we may be united in Jesus to enjoy all of his benefits. Further still, on this point, Jesus waited to send the Spirit after his ascension until the Feast of Pentecost, as we see in Acts 2. Pentecost being a thanksgiving, another feast, that for first fruits of the harvest. It's another one of the seven feasts laid out in Leviticus and fulfilled by Christ. As Jesus himself is the first fruits of new creation that he ushered in. In its essence, the promise for us this morning is the Holy Spirit would 
dwell within the believers. And this means that we are awakened to spiritual life, life with God. So let me share some pastoral reflections here, implications for us this morning for the day-to-day life of a Christian. Number one is the heart. Christian experience must penetrate the heart and thus transform all of life. What does this look like? Well, an awareness of our inner workings is helpful. Our intellect, our affections, our will. The Spirit calls to mind the truths of God's Word, shows us the beauty of Christ, and thus, when our hearts are captivated, changes our will to conform to His. To make decisions that honor Him and to help advance His kingdom. Here's put Another way, which drives to this point, Richard Lovelace says this, Christians who block out their minds in the process of attuning themselves to the Spirit are trying to replace an essential human attribute by the gift of the Spirit, which is meant to transform that faculty, not replace it. This leads to the second point. God, in giving you his Spirit, wants a relationship with you He wants fellowship with you, communion with you. He wants your heart. He doesn't simply want external obedience to the law, where your heart can still be very far from him. His spirit rather warms our hearts to delight in him and his will and his word. Ultimately, God's spirit testifies to your spirit of your intimate relationship with him. You are a child of God. How is the spirit testifying to your spirit this morning that you are a child of God? Thirdly, regarding the nature of this life-giving power, these words Jesus chose when teaching on the Holy Spirit. In this instance, we're about rivers of living water flowing from within. There's so many places in scriptures, as we've already alluded to, that we could go to learn more about the nature of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. But let's look at two here. First, Isaiah 44, 3 says this, For I will pour water on the thirsty land the streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Spirit, blessing. Again, very similar imagery that Jesus used. Fundamentally, here we see that the blessing of the spirit, the presence of the spirit, is this. Choi suggests When the blessing is proclaimed by a preacher in Christian community in the contemporary or the ancient world, it is often mistakenly conceived as the physical affluence, prosperity, well-being of believers in a church. However, the book of Isaiah, with special reference to chapter 44, particularly emphasizes an essential point that the life of righteousness is none other than the blessing. The Spirit of God intends to cultivate in the midst of Christian community, both individually and collectively. Secondly, 
Galatians 5, a very important chapter for the life in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul uses different but related imagery here. He says, but the fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and patience and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentle and self-control. What is clear is that it is God who grows this fruit in us, in our heart, by his Spirit. It's the gospel that's applied to our hearts when believed. The Spirit convicts us of sin, grows us in belief in Christ, and his finished work on our behalf, and leads us to live a life of obedience and fellowship with God. We cannot bring such fruit about on our own. Notice, too, one particular fruit mentioned here, right? Joy. Joy is brought about in the fullness of God's presence. Paul concludes this section by giving an exhortation to us as here is too. We are to walk in his spirit. What does that mean? Mary Kostenberger explains for us, very helpful. To walk by the spirit indicates a movement concurrent with and according to the influence and guidance of the spirit. The Spirit should be leading our steps, inspiring our movement, and infusing our relationship with God in Christ. We may not know ahead of time which way we should go, but at each step we can be aware of the Spirit's guidance and then move in the direction He leads. This starts with a listening posture, a general openness to God's leading, and a preparedness to obey God's revealed will in Scripture, especially in the moral area. Fourth and finally, a word on expectation. We've been awakened to new spiritual life, the promised life-giving power of the Spirit in abundance, but that doesn't mean we will be completely freed from negative thoughts, emotions, experiences. Though the Spirit does work in us, even to put to death our old selves, Put to death sin and to grow us in the newness of life purchased for us. As John Owen says, the vigor and the power of the spiritual life depends upon the mortification of sin. But the spirit doesn't control our sanctification to the point of collapsing our humanity. Ronald Knox in one of his works puts forth this error in this way that grace does not eradicate or replace nature but it does bring it to perfection often slowly more slowly than we would like and so we are being perfected by the spirit that dwells within our full humanity and we are eagerly awaiting that day which his work will be brought to completion as promised as we draw to close Jesus subverts our expectations. He even subverted the expectations of those gathered in his midst, shouting, O Lord, save us, make us prosper. For in order to secure the future blessing, the freedoms, Jesus first had to die. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah, who would wear the crown and exercise all authority as king, had to die. On a cross, first, 
in order that he might give his people life, abundant joy. Derek Kigner commenting on Psalm 22 shows that through its ultimate end, it concludes with the spread of joy to all nations. It begins with an execution. This is a precious psalm rich with significance. Words which were on the lips of Jesus as he was executed. As foretold, at the hands of the Roman soldiers, Jesus' side was pierced so that water would flow from him. Jesus was the rock that was struck. Jesus was the one that was rejected and exiled to the dangerous lands of the wilderness so that we could be welcomed and fully embraced in the loving arms of a heavenly father. Jesus was desperately thirsty amidst his physical suffering, but even more so spiritual suffering of abandonment by the father so that we could have our thirst quenched by the living God. He has done it, as Psalm 22 concludes, or in the words of Jesus himself on the cross, it is finished. And so all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord as joy, rich joy, spreads to all the nations. Jesus offered himself up in love as a substitute so that we could receive all things promised by God in him. All God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And he welcomes us home to his full presence in the garden city promised to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of your word, that you cannot lie. Help us trust, cling to your promises. Help us believe that you are with us in the wilderness and you will bring us home to fullness of joy, life with you. Help us see no light, delight in Christ your son more fully this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.